So the question, the question was, um, what was the question? Uh, did I put it? And, okay, uh, we're in the, in a dactocracy, uh, we have this document that um, people use to give history, give the decision uh, of, of keep the record of everything that happens, right? Uh, especially regarding uh, decisions and and things that changes changes to the entity, whatever. So I'm asking, where do we keep those documents or that document for an entity? You see it like a smart contract, you know, in the crypto space where uh, the participating entities have copies of the documents and they uh, kind of check changes to it and make sure that changes are valid, yada, yada. Or is it like a uh, Git repository where uh, it is just in one place and people can add to it and make changes to it? Uh, but there's, that's more like a well, Git can be distributed, right? So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking how, uh, who, or where this document lives when it comes to uh, an, in, in an ecosystem or an entity's uh, library of things. And how do we store it? And where is it kept? And how do we work with it? That was the question. Well, there, uh, let's start with how the document is accessed. So that's the most important part of the question. And I think the answer to that is you want it to be accessed from within the organization and potentially not without the organization. So it says to me that we have a networked document and we would probably use standard protocols for that. Distributed systems, well, Distributed blockchain systems are usually for where we have transactions with potentially untrusted third parties. They're usually not efficient for like transactional within an organization documentation system where we can assume that there aren't a lot of adversaries. So that's just a couple thoughts there. Should it be distributed? Certainly. And, and I guess let me add an interesting thought to all of this is that if, if we trust that by the design of the system, every edit is transparent, we that in and of itself is a kind of protection against adversarial or nefarious behavior. Uh, it's not the same as data security, but it does mean that you know you get this property that we want within the organization, which is non-repudiation. People can't say, "Oh, I didn't say that," because everything is digitally signed. And so, I think the short of everything is, it's a network document, and it should be buildable from components or technologies that we already understand. Right. One, uh, just a data point, uh, we had this discussion a couple of episodes ago, is that it's easiest to think about this in the context of an organization, but I think the, 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 the framing that we're having our conversations in is sort of at the level of a society, which has you know, some cohesion, um, and in fact, one of the questions is exactly what sort of cohesion, but in fact, can have multiple organizational entities within it. Um, but it is interesting. Actually, this is kind of a silly question. Is there, uh, you know, it seems like the Git model of, you know, there's a standard repository, but then there's a central GitHub repository, which is kind of the 
de facto authoritative branch, but everyone has copies of that. And I guess one question is, is that has that ever been successfully hacked to rewrite history or does the sort of the nominal existence of multiple uh, clones of everything tend to make that infeasible in practice? Yeah, so it isn't, in that case, it isn't the replication that gives you the security, it's the hashing. And so the non-repudiation in Git comes from the fact that you, you can't invert a hash for a commit. So another, in order to impute something to you that you didn't say, I would have to break the hashing function. And, and now there are known attacks against SHA-1, which is what, what Git uses, but no one's really worried about those. You, you can find, I think, what are called pre-image collisions. So you, in other words, you could find two different pieces of code or two different documents that produce the same hash. And that breaks a digital signature scheme to some extent because you don't sign the whole document, you sign the hash of the document. That actually is very, so I guess very quickly, if you want to do this in a societal context, then a blockchain does make sense, but we probably don't store the data itself on chain. We just signed, it's like an HMAC. You just sign, the, you just store the signed hash on the blockchain. So it's a record that right. this person so, so did this way, thing. And that, so either way, if you've got a broken hash, even a blockchain is unlikely to help you. Oh, everything like, the, <laughs> I won't say yeah. the world will end, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, if, if any of these cryptographically strong hash functions turn out to be invertible or otherwise vulnerable, like, it, you know, it's digital doom in many ways. Yeah, mm. but the reality how, is, is how, that it is, it is not trivial to create two documents that have the same hash. And so no, it's, the it's very difficult. Have one that is personally benign and the other one that is deeply malicious. That's a, that's a good science fiction novel scenario, but not really a, uh, it, it, there's many other failure modes that are likely to be hit before that. Yeah. And what's Social interesting is that so forth, yeah. per perception, we're hitting the perceptual limit, like deep fakes, you know, within five to 10 years are going to be crazy, crazy good to where you, I don't know what, what you're going to have to essentially do is digitally sign the videos as well, because the digital signature is stronger than the perceptual guarantees or perceptual discrimination that people have. Like, did the president really say this? Well, video is not mm -hmm. going to be a reliable measure of that. But, uh, you know, I hate to use the word flippantly, but a block, a cryptographic signature is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the, the short answer is that, so what I'm hearing is that, like, in some sense, both Git and the blockchain are limited by hashes. And the thing that actually tends to be the practical uh, factor is knowing who did what, which is tied to the digital signature. If you know who oh, did yes. this They're commit. Also, the commits are digitally signed as well. That's correct. And you know, just to, to your earlier point, yes, there is a repository on GitHub, but by design, Git has no head. It's just a distributed network of nodes. So in other words, there's, well, I, the head is not the right word. Uh, there is no privilege node. I can pull from you or you can pull from me. And it's, you know, wherever you want the commits to live at any given time. Uh, what's interesting then is that as a practical matter, authority is more like um, the, the deploy pipeline, right? It's like, I am not gonna go around checking everyone's hash or secures or whatever. I just know if I hit this endpoint, I expect to get something like a reliable transaction or the most recent version of the document or whatever. And that feels like kind of the, the sharp end of the stick to your point in that if, if, the, if there's a good chain of trust so that that usually works and then when it breaks, you can figure out what went wrong. That's, 
what it sounds like the conversation we had last week in each <laughs> for data within an organization. Oh, well, also true, yes. So, and actually, that's an extraordinarily important point, right? So traceability, I mean, these are terms are all related but not the same. Traceability, reproducibility, provability requires this chain, this ledger of mutations, which is what, for instance, a, a git commit log is. And part of knowing what went wrong is just writing down what happened. Yeah, so that's interesting. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it's like in some sense, the the things that are interesting are really at the edges of the system. You know, the the endpoints where you know services are provided or people kind of expect to hear authoritative information, and on on the consumer side, on the producer side, it's sort of who holds the digital key to find this thing, and. Uh, really, that's probably where things are going to break down most of the time, right? Is that if someone's sloppy with a key or the, you know, whatever tools and chains they're using to do that, or they're sloppy with the last stage of the deployment piece, uh, those seem much more likely to be socially engineered than the various cryptographic security items themselves to be compromised. So, so yes, and, but, and we shouldn't oversell what we can do with either a Git-like protocol or a blockchain protocol, because a blockchain ledger can guarantee that there's no double spend and through digital signatures that the transactions are valid. The blockchain ledger does, is in some sense a much weaker entity than what we need because it says nothing about the veracity of the document. So in other words, that's a whole nother class of problem. In other words, the, the blockchain will guarantee that things like we don't have double spend, that this transaction came from this person, but now there's a much harder problem because we're, we have, we're worried about the content of the document. All we can say is, mm -hmm. well, this person signed this document. We, we can't say anything about the truth of the document, at least not with the primitives that we've talked about. And I think that's the hard problem. It's interesting. There's a duality here that we ran into before in that you can kind of come up with technical standards to guarantee readability. But the problem of understandability is a... Uh, you know, open-ended problem, you know, can one human being ever understand another? Uh, and that similarly, it seems like we can build technical systems that can guarantee a certain level of consistency in the sense that mm -hmm. the system is behaving, you know, according to all these different rules and things, but that's different than utility. <laughs> is it actually doing the thing we want it to do? Yeah, I would break that down as syntax and semantics. So, so computers as yeah. a rule are, are right, exactly. So, so semantics now, and 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 now, now that actually brought up something very interesting. So, the process of writing unit tests and the process of creating reliability within the organization is turning as much of the semantics into known syntax as you can, because that's what a unit test is. Yes. Yeah. No. Keep running with yeah. that. If, if that. Yeah, because this is interesting because uh, this, uh, let me throw another curveball if I may. Uh, this gets to the issue with Hayek and price, you know, because historically price was sort of the, the one semantic around which an economy could coalesce and have a generally agreed understanding of it. And one of the interesting questions to me is, well, actually one of the interesting observations I have is that within various local markets, we have uh, managed to achieve things beyond price as part of the shared semantics. You know, for airline seats, you know, you see the price, you see the duration, the number of stops, aisle or window seat, et cetera. 
for food. We have general nutrition labels. And this idea of semantically enriched markets enabling wiser choices on the part of customers isn't something that I've heard uh, economists talk about, but it seems like it could potentially be a significant shift in our understanding of how to achieve sort of better outcomes without uh, central planning authority. Wow, this is great. So, so the, I think the economist who, who touched on this is Eleanor Ostrom. And she, her career was spent attacking the tragedy of the commons problem. And she said, well, there's this, she basically said that the tragedy of the commons is a fallacy. And you'll see it a lot in debates about public policy. Well, that how do we prevent the free rider problem? How do we prevent a single individual when we have a common resource, uh, let's say a pasture, how do we prevent a single individual from disproportionately accruing the benefits and then the harm Externalizing is across? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so she, she came, she, what she says is this is a solution neither that an individual can solve nor that the government can solve. And, and what she says, she calls these, there's a special name she has for these. Um, and they're like um, common, commonly shared resources, something I have to, I'll have to crack her book. And is that like club goods he, in any sense? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that term, so I don't want to guess. And okay. if, if, uh, give right. it just a minute, and I'll come up with exactly the term. But here, here's, what, here's the short of everything that she says. You right. can attain, and there are many examples and she, that she uses in the book, and one of them is, I think, fisheries. Okay? And she says, it, here's the short of everything. She has eight specific steps that she breaks down to, but here's the short of everything. If the users of a shared resource come to a tacit set of agreements, they can all use that resource to advantage without overfishing, without underfishing, and, and the, the system becomes sustainable. That's the short of everything. Right. It basically it's and governance. so it's about it, the it contract. It doesn't require a government. It requires sort of a cooperative governance. It does require, that is correct. That is an important distinction. Yeah, and I think that's the really interesting thing to me about, uh, you know, the, 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 the post-financial economy, just to coin a phrase is that we could create these ad hoc, which we already do in the kind of oasis purpose of existence, which is right, it's creating ad hoc, uh, I, I, I think the, the key phrase is turning semantics into syntax. I may use that as the uh, episode title, right? The idea is that by, uh, Neil Stevenson calls uh, computers in one of his parallel universes syntactic devices, because all they do is manipulate syntax. But if you can create these little micro communities that build now here's a question ah this is in principle there is no limit to which semantics you can encode in syntax or is there right so i guess the first thing i want to the first observation i want to make is that software eating the world is exactly turning semantics into syntax that that is really what software Ooh. eating the world is and, and the, so what we, your job as a software engineer or as an other form of technologist or technology leader is, is to take things that were formerly labor intensive and required a lot of thinking by human beings and automate them. And, and there's a frontier between things that only humans can do and things that we can codify well enough for machines to do. Now, mm -hmm. that frontier is always moving. But you, again, is this a valid defeater? No, you run into things like the halting problem. Right. So in other words, you can add, there are a lot of special cases that you can do to detect whether or not a program will halt. And we might have to step back and explain what this is, but you will never be able to get all cases. 
So in other words, there is an elegance to the universe and the universe has a logic to it that no number of rules can capture. I probably said too much there, but, it, but we can back it off to the halting problem and just, just focus on that. Right. But, which, but, but, yeah. Yeah. but to me, the interesting thing is that like, as far as I know, the theoretical problem of, of halting rarely interrupts my daily job. Uh, I, usually what I hit much closer is that, you know, the word that we used in this meeting, we had a certain vague understanding of what we meant by that. But as we accumulate more understanding, we realize that uh, either a we that the the difference between the formal understanding of that term I encoded in the software and the cultural shared understanding that we had when we designed the software, and then the real world consequence that we were trying to manage to end up being three different things, yeah. and that's usually where the, the the encoding of semantics into syntax breaks down. Well, and so there's something really interesting here. And, and essentially, in, in the world of cognitive science, you, the, the gulf between execution and evaluation is the difference between your mental model and the actual state of the world. And mm. so what, and by the way, the term, I just happen to have Ostrom's book on my desk. The term that she uses is CPRs, and I believe that's common pooled resources. And mm. she, she never, I, or I'm not deep enough into her work to know whether she sets a limit on the scale of CPRs. But this is a, unifying thread in all of our conversations, which is to say, first you attain local alignment within your business unit, then you try for a more, maybe an organizational alignment. And uh, I feel like the questions that Ernest are driving is like, how do we get global alignment? And the mm -hmm. observation I can make is that these CPRs or these small groups or communities of practice, they kind of have to first agree with one another and then we start piling up the contracts, so to speak, or we start matching Ooh. semantics across groups with syntax. So we're back to Xanadu. Well, right? I don't know. This is Doug but the Doug Ungerbert's uh, vision was this idea mm. of a meta community of practice, that a uh, 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 community of improvement, right? So the idea is that we have communities of practice, we network them together so they can share best practices, and then we have a meta community that helps optimize the way that they learn. Right, it is a community of practice that helps other community of practice to become more efficient. And one of the interesting um, insights here, which at least is new to me, um, was this thing that Ernest and I bumped into a couple episodes ago, which is that maybe the way that we build this sort of, and maybe global is the wrong word, but you know, an expanding society, right, which can be embedded within a larger society, is of people who are, you know, sincerely devoted to their community of practice. They actually want to make things better and they document it through the process of turning semantics into syntax in a very open and transparent way. And if we could actually come up with a sort of common substrate, whatever that means for people to do that, then that allows us to uh, build this uh, hierarchy of learning and improvement on top of that in a way that is in sense potentially global. It isn't necessarily tied to a particular language or format. Uh, format. Uh, I mean, what sense, do you mean by format? Like, well, the sense that if there is a, um, the act of turning semantics into syntax means that there actually is sort of code which given a set of inputs produces a well-defined set of outputs. Mm -hmm. And if you have, I guess, not just, uh, then this is probably reaching a bit, but if you have not just sort of open source, 
you know, where the code is visible, but you have sort of open services where you can see how they run in practice. And you have open communities where you're actually, uh, you know, kind of seeing how things actually work out in, in the real world, not just how they work out on paper. To the extent you have these things, you can accelerate learning and sharing. Yeah. Um, you know, you can look at meme culture on, uh, you know, Twitter or YouTube or TikTok or whatever. You can see how having, well, TikTok's a great example of how a meme can spread globally, uh, even across barriers of language, because people right. have a certain set of primitives and tools that are designed for easy repl replicability and variability on a common substrate. That's kind of what I meant. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I'm thinking now of people that speak in uh, emojis, which I always mm -hmm. like. I'm not going to. Well, first, there's the thing of each company can interpret the emoji standard whichever way they want. So in, the, in one particular case that put me off emojis completely is the Apple decision. Oh, we're gonna we're not gonna depict a real gun. We're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be a water gun something. And yeah, but a water gun is something. <laughs> well, the politics different. came into emojis. Yeah, and then emojis yeah. get filtered through through their personal political so, opinions. Exactly. So I don't. I'm not using emojis. People talk emojis to me like uh, I, I just don't use it because there's a possibility in there that is is it, not zero. It's, it's great. It's much greater than zero. Of actually, it did happen to me. It did happen to me. I was, I was talking emojis with, with for my iPhone with a person who has an Android, and the um, I think iPhone has was ahead of the standard. I don't know a couple of years from the whatever standard the. Uh, her iPhone had or her Android phone had. So the emoji that I sent got translated into something that she interpreted as being offensive. And then that caused yeah. all kinds of strife. So I'm like, no, I will never use emoji again because I don't know what comes out of the other side. So emoji, we, we want to make it into a language. Apple talks about uh, other types of emoji, you know, an emoji or whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that because, you know, we can we go into the 1984 thing where uh, they messed up language so much that, you know, you you can't express yourself because the language is so limited that you, you know, well, you, you can't. So that, it, again, I, and I hate to put uh, theoretical notions in front of this is an applied science, right? How do we create this set of hyper documents for people to self-govern? But if I if I remember from my theory of computation class, I, I remember my instructor, Dr. Stark, he, he actually explained. So, Ernie, this is the frontier for you. He said that. Hold, let me think if I can remember this. Yeah, I think you can show that if an if a language is semantically checkable, it's not Turing complete. So well, I think what that means is there's going to be a limit to how far we can again. And we may be well below that limit. And I'm not saying it's not good to push that limit. But but there's some. There are some paradoxes baked into the problem. And to tie that to what Ernest just said, you know, you lose a certain amount of expressivity when everything yeah, but, comes but, to that. Just, just to get this on the table, by the way, I'm not sure I buy Turing completeness as a valid measure of computation, but that's a different heresy for a different time. Yeah. There's something I, I, I just, I'm so compelled. So I, I literally had Dr. Ostrom's book, This is Governing the Commons on my desk. And she has, I won't, I won't read the, kind of the, the lengthy description of each one, but I want to throw these out because it's too perfect. So what she has is she has design principles 
illustrated by long enduring CPR institutions. And boy, it, it feels like we're skating right around this. And let's remember that her, her goal was to, to establish, first of all, how, collect, how institutions for collective action could work, right? And that happened to be non-governmental. All right, so these are her eight design principles. One, clearly defined boundaries. We were just talking about that. Two, congruence between appropriation and provision rules and local conditions. Three, collective choice arrangements. We can double click on any of these that you want. Four, monitoring. Five, graduated sanctions. Six, conflict resolution mechanisms. Seven is minimal recognition of rights to organize. And then finally, for large, for CPRs that are part of larger systems, nested enterprises. That feels to me a lot like a blueprint for the, I don't know, the, the types of structures, organizational and otherwise, that we need to put in place in order for a dictocracy to begin to work. And, and maybe just this realization that it's neither individual, that it, that it is collective action, but not driven by a governmental organization is important in and of itself. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. the thing that's always confused me about philosophy and economists, is they always talk about society and the state like it's a given and that individuals as if they are givens and maybe more recently as corporations or firms as givens and like this is my weird brain it's like yeah all of those are kind of fuzzy to me it's like the the line between um you know my messy brain with all my competing impulses and personas and roles and a government it, it, uh you know what composed of many constituencies it always felt like it's it's all more or less the same sort of uh, passion stew, and to me the interesting like to me that's actually the really interesting and maybe even provocative thesis is that we have this almost religious attachment to things like the state or the individual or the firm, but the reality is is that in the modern world it's much more fractal, and we all have different personas and identities that we work collaboratively on different things, and. Uh, you know, maybe that's actually one way we solve this problem is by recognizing the fractality of governance um, all the way up and down. And that like, we don't have to get rid of governments, we don't have to get rid of markets, but we can subvert them by treating as variables things that they treat as fixed. Hmm. Right, like we talked about one example, like in a world of open well, source, where you wanna have like reward for creators, you don't necessarily have to have firms with you know, all the legal and political and informational and financial stuff all bundled into one big thing that oversees everything. You could have many different fractions of it. My daughter is getting annoyed at me, so I need to move to a different room. <laughs> well, the, I, this is the last, it's just too perfect. So, and this is from the end of Dr. Oster's book, and I'll just go through. She, she's mm -hmm. attacking exactly the problem which you're attacking right now, Ernie, which is that we reify, well, there's two issues that you identified. So one is, the local state and the global state don't always seem to be that different, but that's part of because we reify the government into this fictional entity, and, and I can't do it better than Dr. Ostrom. Here's, here's what she said. What I find remarkable about Rolf's observations, this is about groundwater, in regard to the groundwater cases is that the only policy actor she sees as being relevant is the amorphous, fictitious, and omnicompetent entity called, quote unquote, the government. The users are viewed as turning to, quote, the government for a program rather than themselves struggling to find workable and equitable solutions to difficult problems within arenas provided by courts, by legislative bodies, and by local authorities. 
does that mean that people or local entities can fix something or address something much better than the fictitious government can? I, I think I think that's the implication, and and that is, that is what her work is like. Hey, we have a common pooled resource. Can we make it work? And and her answer is yes. Ooh, ooh, this is interesting. This is the failure mode I keep running into. Um, I had this uh, my long running uh, the Great Reset. A 42 week experiment in sort of online social discourse. And what was interesting to me is that I really wanted to make this group self governing, but people still were upset with what the group was doing, and they always vented their upset at me, despite my best efforts to say, hey, why don't you try doing something different or take charge of it or run it or whatever. And I realized, you know, to the point she was making is that when groups do collectively self organize, they are far more effective. But there is also a countervailing impulse, which is it actually feels good to have a, a daddy figure or you know a god figure or some other thing that is like the thing that you can blame so you don't have to take responsibility for the situation. Yeah. And getting people over that hump to taking on collective self-governance is actually quite hard. And what's worse is when you actually do succeed in doing that, they often do that only by um, uh, shrinking the circle of concerns they consider valid so that, you know, like, I'll take ownership of this as long as I, have to deal, I don't have to deal with those people or those issues, right? You know, this is the problem with corporations, right? They're really good at self-governing, but they're really horrible at managing their own externalities. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that maybe well, an intrinsic feature is that wow. that's the way we manage our shame and our finiteness is by saying, well, I'll handle that, but don't talk to me about this. That's not my problem. Yeah, so there's a really deep and really interesting paradox here. So, so first of all, turning semantics into syntax is a process of abstraction. What does that mean? That means that a formerly semantic tax, task is now syntax, so I can give it to a machine. So mm -hmm. the, pr the process of going from semantics to syntax requires agency or abstraction, but yet that very abstraction which makes it possible for us to abstract becomes a barrier when because now we look at the group and we start reifying the group and say well the group needs a persona who's responsible for the group and the thing that kind of got us out of the first mess gets this into a second one and i guess i don't know that that's really interesting so who who is this is the question and i i think uh, this is a guess thinking about dr ostrom what was missing from your group so the reason I keep pick, picking on fisheries because it's a it's a very vivid example. They can get yeah. together as all their livelihoods depend on it. There's very little skin in the game in a Facebook group. Like it, people may come in with certain expectations, but it's not like, you know, your family doesn't eat as a result of, <laughs> or not as a result of what happens in that group. And so I think the, the level of, of ownership, the level of skin in the game is probably missing from that situation. Yeah, although there is this, what is the, the line my friend used to say, the reason faculty politics are so horrible is because the stakes are so low. Um, but there is also this weird thing that, you know, but it works both ways, right, is that if you're, you know, want to be president of a neighborhood association, there's a lot of obligations that come along with the power and the, and the privilege. And the, um, and there's also, of course, in addition to the founder effect, which I've discovered you can't really get away from, even if you give away all the nominal power to somebody else, everyone still knows you're the founder and That's being right. in the room distorts the decision-making. 
The, the, the other thing I was surprised by, though, is the process of turning semantics into syntax. You called it abstraction. I would have been tempted to call it digitization. Um, and I was okay, curious so if there's a I agree with you. I don't, you. They're, they're definitely different. Um, so turning semantics into syntax isn't so much abstraction as it allows abstraction, and I'll tell you what I mean. The thing that used to take my whole day now becomes a black box that I can say make X do X. So you're focusing on how semantics okay, turn so into syntax? So, yeah. Right. So, so yeah. what's interesting to me is that this is human civilization long before, or maybe it is, right? So Code of Hammer Ruby or military organization. I mean, in some sense, the um, the idea that I can deal with, you know, the general of the army rather than a thousand people in a mob mm. as individuals is abstraction and, and arguably that is civilization in fact that's actually one of the definitions i have of civilization is where i can deal with roles rather than individuals right mm -hmm. i don't have to know mm -hmm. everybody in my community i know he's a cop and i trust whatever processes uh generate right. a cop it, it, i trust a cop in a different way than my wife did when she came to the u.s because she was a different right the semantic mapping onto that syntactic structure um and i guess blacks and whites in america have different uh semantic mappings onto that as well uh, for all sorts of complicated reasons. And so this idea that civilization is fundamentally a process of abstraction, uh, it's what enables us to work, but it's also what alienates us and makes us you know, less happy uh, in different ways. And one could argue, um, I think it was, so my favorite word that I've been thinking a lot about is self-differentiation which originally is in like psychology, like a child differentiates from the family. But there was an author whose name I'm escaping who worked for L Lyndon Johnson. And the thing he admired about Lyndon Johnson was he was self-differentiated in the sense that as a leader, you cannot have so much empathy that overwhelms your ability to make decisions, right? This is the sort of the classic Star Trek episode where the officer has to order this oh, right. to his death in order to save the, the whole ship. You have to be able to abstract away from the emotional immediacy. And so that ability to abstract away is what allows you to make globally optimal decisions that are locally suboptimal, but the converse, right. conversely, it allows you to justify locally suboptimal things in pursuit of this global optimality. And, you know, historically we've, uh, you know, gone back and forth on sort of collectivism versus fascism. You know, we one strong autocratic figure to make all the decisions versus diffusing it. And what you generally find is that, you know, egalitarian communal situations are more just and uh, autocratic institutions are more uh, innovative. And the autocratic ones tend to outcompete the collectivist ones uh, mm. in some ways. Oh, but the uh, interesting counterexample of that, of course, is the, uh, is the distributed systems of like a market or an economy or an ecosystem, right? Is that is that a well-designed ecosystem, uh, usually the bazaars, right, usually outcompete the cathedrals. And it's interesting to figure out why and when that works. Sorry, a lot of I do, phrases thrown in there. I there. think I have an answer to that. So, ah. so and I think, I think it comes down to, uh, so, so first of all, I think the right polarity is individualism versus collectivism. And the reason is the actual societies that all the Marxist societies that aimed for collectivism actually became authoritarian states, like deeply authoritarian states. So, so the first thing. Now, now here's the question. So under which conditions does individualism 
let's say distributed autonomous systems produce better results versus let's say monolithic or authoritarian systems. And and I have I think there are three dimensions to this. So one is scale, right? So when when systems are extremely large, you almost always require a distributed approach. And I'll I'll break this down and give historical examples as needed. So so scale is the first dimension. The second dimension is is what I call heterogeneity. So for instance, the Scandinavian economies, which are actually in, in point of fact our market economies, but they have some socialist features, some social democratic features, they're highly homogenous. And yeah. it is okay, it is very conceivable to work for the healthcare of a fellow Swede who is probably distantly related to you in some way, number one, has the same sense of work ethic, number two, looks like you, number three. I'm not making that right or wrong, I'm just pointing out. The scale, homogeneity, yeah. And, and then the third piece is like what I would call alignment or, or shared fate. So if a family is, is a fairly heterogeneous entity. However, they're all in a shared fate. So the short of everything is the higher the One scale. <laughs> high scale is for distributed systems. Low scale is for, let's call them centralized systems. High heterogeneity is for centralized systems. Low heterogeneity, well, so let me say that differently. Sorry, high heterogeneity is for distributed systems. Low heterogeneity or homogeneity is for centralized systems. And then lastly, systems that are well aligned, right? They have common fate, those work centralized and, and systems that don't need a distributed approach. Yeah, so I feel like there's a dimension there that you're operating in that is different than what I'm thinking about. Like, like I think about like the Roman Empire, was that homogeneous? I mean, that seems like that covers a larger, you know, number, larger percentage of the world than, you know, uh, any given country does now uh, in a, you know, and so I think maybe the issue is that, um, I think maybe the issue is that like, if it's purely distributed, like a, a, a local centralized thing can generally run circles around a distributed system, but not against a decentralized system. And I think maybe that's where I'm getting confused about decentralized versus distributed. Mm. Hmm. Right. Cause well, it, and I think, cause I think that, I think the interesting thing to me, yeah, actually I'm going to make a posit is that uh, amorphous de distributed systems can generally be outcompeted by a centralized system. You know, the, uh, the Mongol horde, you know, crushing uh, the fiefdoms of Europe, for example, but that a decentralized system uh, outcompetes a centralized system. And I think that the distinction between decentralized and distributed is, is well, really important to me, even though I can't define it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, decentralized versus distributed. So that's an interesting one. I want to come back to that. I guess what I, so I decentralized think I think is like local means uh, uh, operating to achieve a, 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 a global goal. I think that's probably the definition of decentralized. Hmm. Well, the uh, I think there's there's an it depends asterisk anywhere, right? So so and and. I hate to bring it up again, but blockchain so the question, is a really it good example. depends on what is the question, yeah. Well, right. So, so, and, and I, I still propose that it's, it's scale, heterogeneity, and alignment. Like the, those, those are the factors that you need to look so at. Like, see you, which, I, 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 like I, I'm not sure I understand like a concrete example where you could demonstrate to me why you mean. So, so certainly you agree that like sure. okay. Uh, so certainly you know managing a and uh, a homogeneous population is. So sorry, are we arguing it's easier to have one monarch running a homogeneous population, or it's easier to have yes, yes. Uh, that central, centralization a homogeneous is, population? So, no. So, 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 so what do you mean by centralization then? Got it. So here, let me let me look at it a different way. So um, the when you have a homogeneous system, one size fits all. 
when you have a heterogeneous or, or multimodal, bimodal system, one size fits none. So the average is exactly the wrong thing to do in the case where you have a very varied population, a multimodal distribution. Okay, so, but so it's the, the point is, is that for, yeah. any, for any given figure of merit, the, the, the heterogeneity of the relevant parameters relative to the thing that you're optimizing or standardizing on is uh, the thing that you're talking about. Yes. So okay, in other words, is, which right. is maybe totally orthogonal to systems of government. It could be, although I, I have thought about this a lot in the context of COVID, and I'll, I'll give a really simple example. It, it's that the the Chinese regime was excellent at locking down. Like, they're expert at this. It's a highly racially homogeneous population. There are clearly problems there, by the Telling way. Telling people what not to do. Yes, they can, they're excellent yeah, at and, that. Yeah, and I mean, the way they isolated Wuhan was they rubbled the roads with bulldozers. You, you, you couldn't physically leave. Now, and so that strategy worked very well for them. It's completely against the ethos of Western society, though. And part of the reason, the reason America got its name of a melting pot, is there's so many different people and so many different cultures and lots of people who don't like to be told what to do. And lockdowns is an optimally bad strategy for that case. So here, China, let's see, China is about a billion, the U.S. is about a third of the size of China. Let's consider them both roughly equivalent on the scale standpoint. Centralized a, a command economy, command and control philosophy is going to work brilliantly in China, and it's going to it's going to work terribly in the United States. It's going to fall on its face because well, of our well, heritage. Well, I mean, but there's also you can make a case that you know China wasn't always homogeneous, right? They have all they've had their own melting plot over the millennia too, and what's happened is that they. Um, they do have a, a cultural tradition of centralized authority, which has created heterogeneity, uh, homogeneity across that and has been periodically renewed and periodically rebelled against and periodically suppressed and violently enforced. And I think the, so there's two things, right? One is that having a culture of obedience, if you will, uh, of deference to authority is really good at solving a certain class of problems like imposing lockdown it's really horrible at other classes of problems like you know getting the truth of what's actually going on right sure. the, the, the the beginning and the end of of covid in china is disastrous but the, the middle part they did brilliantly at and that's true you know, interesting yeah and and what's interesting is that um ah, this is i think where i, I get this is the, the thing i want to focus on is that the interesting thing to me is not the level of, of, of diversity or whatever. It is what are the things that if we have them in common actually makes for a resilient anti-fragile system, right? So for example, you know, if the U.S. was, uh, you know, which is I think possible to imagine, had really rigorous reporting standards for states and around the free access of information, uh, so that people didn't have to, you know, say, so on, on the one hand, they, well, the CDC couldn't say, don't say this. Uh, you know, so, so there, there's, there's good and bad centralization, right? If, if the, the CDC had been saying, you know, hey, everyone publicly post all your data uh, every time something happens, you know, that would have been a good use of central power versus the central power of like nobody can do tests, nobody can talk about what's actually going on in their places until we say it's safe, mm. right? There seems to be that like distinguishing sort of uh, pro-transparency 
centralization that increases the flow of communication versus anti-transparency circulation seem to be two very different types of central power. Oh, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, th there is a unifying paradox, I think it is. And you asked, you know, what is what is the trope or the axis along which people can align so that collective action becomes possible? And the free market economists all said it was self-interest. And as long as we enable voluntary exchange, that's the thing that everybody shares in common and that you can always bet on every single time. Yeah, and, and that's always and, been, but that's always been something of a crock, right? Because if you leave, if you, you I've never seen a coherent definition of self-interest that actually scales around all the use cases people claim it for. Is self what I want at this moment in time? Is the self my larger sense of identity with my family and loved ones? Is it enlightened self-interest and in that I can perfectly perceive well, the long-term consequence of my actions? It's whatever you want. And the reason that's not, what Friedman points out, Milton Friedman points out, is that whether you are a missionary or a scientist, you are still acting in self-interest. So even if you do a selfless oh, so, thing, so, so, you so, so, so that, that is totally useless to me, Anish. I got to just react to this one right now because I can distinguish in myself Okay, this is what I want for me right now based on my uh, personal emotional state of mind. And then this is what I want for myself because of the kind of world and country and state and family I want to live in, right? And so to say that Can those are self-interest, it, it seems to be well, they're, they're self kind of the point. Because they, they emanate from everything. This is the linguistic game that someone called out for me. There's two different definitions of self-interest. One is interests of the self, and the second is interests in the self. And a lot of literature glosses over those two different things. So as I have a self-interest in, you know, uh, you know, being willing to pour out my life for my children and my faith, okay, that is an interest of the self, but it explicitly leads to an interest against the self, where I'd willingly be cheated and betrayed and lied about in order to achieve this greater goal. And so it's worthwhile to distinguish those two kinds of things. And, you know, the point is that, like, I think the big interesting thing for me that I think Phil Freeman is right about is the systems that require voluntary participation because people see that they have an interest in the system succeeding is important. But the... It re to your point, like at some level, it requires somebody to be willing to put aside their short-term interests in favor of the long-term group interests. Uh, otherwise, you cannot have any sort of uh, trust in anyone. In fact, we do trust people. In fact, humans have evolved precisely to determine whether or not we can trust people to actually fulfill the obligations we have on them versus their short-term selfish interests. Right? You know, well, and, and it's working quite it's everything. working quite well where there's voluntary exchange. So I think there's a couple. This is super interesting, by the way, and I don't I don't have all the answers, but there there are a few reasons why markets don't have this problem. The first is don't have what problem? Sorry, don't have this. The problem that you pose is a problem that persists over time, which is so you're making a semantic distinction between self-interest and interest in the self. So I understand that that exists, but there's two reasons why markets don't care. And the first is the price is an instantaneous scalar that arises from the collective desires of a bunch of individuals, including organizations right. at any given time. Right. But first of all, but first of all like, okay, sorry. So you're saying that markets work to achieve what end? 
No, the distrib the it's it's the distribution so of scarce resources. So, so a, a liquid market with symmetric information will will find a market clearing price that optimizes distribution of scarce resources. Maybe right, but the symmetric information isn't the point. I think the the point oh, yes, the main it is. point. Oh, it is, absolutely is. <laughs> No, no, it's not. No, let me, a, let me a market without why. a market Just, without with asymmetric information clearly does not reach a clearing point and does not optimize well, achieve scarce resources. So here, right? So, there's there's one there's hang on. Well, let's come back to this. So so here's the nuance though. The nuance is if it is a free exchange, both parties profit. So what that means is no, well, so each side of the exchange with with full information. I got to put that caveat in there. I can I don't have an do answer. someone. I, into, I don't know if that's possible. Right, right. Because my my, my son periodically convinces my daughter when they were small to trade her $5 for $1. It was a perfectly voluntary exchange, but I, hard, I have a hard time considering that being a fair exchange. Yeah, I can understand that. I think it's implied that this is, and, this and is and between fact, and consenting adults. And in fact, that's adults. precisely my problem. Well, yeah, right. Uh, the libertarian myth of this mythical, rational adult, right? Because the reality is, I mean, you know, most of the actions we take in America are voluntary to you know a greater or lesser extent, um, but you know there are all sorts of horrible decisions that people make under those things that are detrimental to their own self-interest, right? And you know you can to say that, and you know there's lots of market failures that occur because of that. And I think my point is precisely that um, you know in a world of limited information and reasonably equal power, equally informed peers. A market based on price is a great thing. It's a huge step up of both feudalism and mercantilism, no question about it. But you don't have to look very hard either extensively at different edge cases or even intensively at any single given transaction and say, you know, um, asymmetric information, asymmetric power leads to some really ugly suboptimal outcome. I don't see any way you can avoid that fact other unless you're reifying this concept of a market based on price for some reason I do not fully understand. Well, I guess asymmetric information and asymmetric power are two very different things. The only reason I can't stomach asymmetric information is because the two parties in a transaction are going to have different perspectives on why they're doing what they're doing. They wouldn't affect the trade if they didn't. So they value the same qualities differently, right? And so I think what you're saying but, but, is but, that- no, 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 But that, that's asymmetric utility functions, which is different than asymmetric information. Sure. It seems unlikely to me, though. Let's, let's give an example. Could you can should the drug company reveal its patented process for creating the drug to you when you buy it? I don't should know. Should they reveal all the side effects? Should they reveal all the? I mean, uh, that, that's a given. And there's... Well, 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 no, there is no given here, right? This is exactly the problem. When the drug company pays for all the studies, and they have an incentive to do that. Right? I mean, this is why my friends are. I have friends who are anti-vaxxers. Because they don't trust the financial incentives of the people pushing vaccines. Because they look at the companies, look at the history of them, they look at the funding models, they look at all the failures of reproducibility, and they say, why should I trust these people? I mean, it's tragic, it's horrifying, but it's not entirely well, irrational. It's not entirely irrational. And, and this is the thing. And I think it comes down to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is to say that individuals, lay people, may overestimate their ability in a given domain like science. But when you add the Peter principle to that, the experts have all been put to work on science problems that are so hard that they're wrong most of the time. 
And we've watched through the pandemic, like CDC, WHO, Fauci, they've all had to go back and forth. So the layperson can rightfully look at what are held up as experts. So there's honest mistakes of people who, you know, are working with imperfect information. That is one set of problems. But there is a second set of problems, which, uh, like, to me is, like, fundamental to trust in the system and the brokenness of markets, which I'm not sure you're willing to acknowledge, which is that if you have asymmetric information, in many contexts, that gives you asymmetric power and allows you to impose um, reality on your terms, right? In the olden days when, you know, car dealers knew exactly what the price of a car was and the person coming in had no clue, right? They held all the power. And they were able to well, yes, you know, yes and no, but much caveat emptor, right? So, well, well, yes, I guess uh, what I'm saying so, is, right. no one can. Caveat emptor was explicitly taught to me in my high school consumer economics class. No longer true. Now it is caveat venditor, is that if you uh, push a shoddy good on a consumer, you are liable, right? The, the world is very different than it was. Because of the, 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 the because of Ralph Nader and, and and these people who pushed for symmetric information exchange, and it's created a very different world. And, and you can see a huge difference between consumer segments where that is true, like food and drugs, and where it's not true, like financial products. Right? Yeah. The and, one you know, the one I don't dis- I don't really dispute that. In other words, I don't have a problem with open information. We should get back to the main line. We should end on the main line, which is yeah, but, but, what but, but, types but, but, of organizational is, 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 But that, that's the interesting thing is that this idea of a uh, this idea of an enriched market to me is a really big deal because in the past all we could agree on was price because that was the only shared semantic we had as a culture. But now that we have shared semantics for things like calories or pollution and things like we have an enriched market that is able to and the idea is that government should be in the business i I guess i'm pitching this as is that governance should be primarily in a world where you actually have globally shared transparent non-reputable data it can change the game of government from fiat use of force to enforcement of disclosure standards and maybe that gets us most of the way to a healthier society. I have no, I certainly think it's true that with better information, people can make better decisions up to some limit. And, and, and I think you can see- the limit is probably the semantic limit, I would argue. It might be closer to paradox of choice, which is, you know, like, and in fact, Google found this in the interview process. They, they were putting people through these long marathon interviews, 10, 12 interviews, and they, oh, yeah. when we looked at the data, they realized, you know, after after five interviews, their, their decision quality wasn't getting any better. And I can certainly yeah. imagine cases, information overload, analysis paralysis, where well, so, too much right, information yeah. doesn't help. Right. But, but, but the point is, and this is why you want to have a hierarchy, right, is that, like, you have sort of a, and this is, I think, pretty much what your tool does, right, is you want to have the lake where you gather everything, and then you only have marts where you curate it up. But it's a scalable hierarchical thing where you say, you know, hey, this doesn't look right. I want to have the right, like the, the right to drill down through the layers of the distraction to get to the ground truth. Yes. And I'll, I'll give you Without more than hierarchical. 
without the necessity. Correct. So in other words, you you have the right to the application to, 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 to build down into the lineage of the data, to the province of the data. And it, to me, uh, a data lifecycle is more of a horizontal than a vertical thing. So it's, it's less hierarchical. It's just about, hey, you know, what is my level of confidence in this data? And what is our level of confidence the team? The hard problem, which I think we've left, and, and I apologize, we, we got off the main line there talking about economics, but the hard, I, I think the question, the set of questions that we need to ask is, so first of all, we're all bullish on this concept of local alignment, okay, tribe, tribes, uh, business units, individuals. Individuals can understand, they ostensibly understand their own personal semantics. They can turn their own semantics into syntax successfully. I wish. So where do we go? <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. Actually, to, to, me, some extent. To, me, to me, my, I'll be honest with you, to me, my internal alignment is at least as hard of a problem as social alignment. Figuring out what it is I actually want and being able to articulate it to myself is actually, in many cases, harder than it is getting a group of coworkers together to agree on something. I can understand that. But the machine is there to keep you honest, right? This is what the data unit tests well, and these collective I, I, agreements it, that are, that well, are well, captured. Well, God, I places hope so. where I have a functioning system, it, but like, exactly, the question is where I have, like, so I started doing unit tests on my psyche. Right, I have a personal practice where I. Oh dear God, I've never even thought of such things. But but literally, no, you've heard of these things too, right? It's like I do meditation to clear my mind and say, am I? Okay. As part of that, are there things that are troubling me? That are causing me angst, thoughts that I can't get logo, bitterness, right? Forgiveness, you know, all these things are really unit. Okay. Personal devotional practices or meditative practices are unit tests for your psyche. You're trying to create something syntactic and measurable. Sure, makes sense. Right. Well, and, said, and, and, this, and this is my argument is that the scale. Ooh, this is the idea is that the scale is almost irrelevant. What matters is having these syntactic tests in a codified practice that the interested parties can uh, rally around. And that would be organizations at the global level or individuals at the psychic level. And. Let me interject a little bit here. Um, <laughs> you were you you were both <laughs> talking about markets and and systems and all that. I was thinking just more basic and like values and principles. And I was thinking of you know when do we need uh, an autocratic leader versus where do we need uh, decentralized uh, uh, not leadership but um, working environment, whatever. So I'm thinking of GNU, you know, the Stallman, the head of the GNU Linux thing, uh, who at the beginning, he was, you know, he actually wrote code and, uh, you know, did all kinds of things to get that movement going, right? On the later years, um, uh, when the machine was, uh, you know, established and, you know, we had all kinds of different versions of GNU Linux, you know, uh, Debian, uh, uh, well, all don't forget, let's, to be, fair, to be fair, he lost his power when Linus uh, built yeah, Linux yes, he lost to get around the herd, right? Well, it, yeah, but the, 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 the cathedral, even, don't forget, the Cathedral in the Bazaar was literally written to describe how Linus built an ecosystem when Stalin mm-hmm. was trying to build an empire. That was very much the point where Stalin lost his power. But yes, yes, and the reason I, I guess it, 
that would be David's power. But the uh, moral power, or the uh, he still kept it until it was discovered that he was, or or until it was made clear that he had you know problems with with young women or whatever. And then all kinds of uh, all the people. Let's 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 say that all the Linux, uh, the GNU distributions and programmers and and contributors were cats, and they were. Uh, going in in, uh, in one direction, the direction that uh, there's uh, self-interest or selfless interest, whatever takes them, which is to have better computing for the world, right? So they all believe in that. Well, well, their whatever their interests were, I would say, right? Yeah. Is that there was there were different interests. Some people were much more commercial. Some people were much more libertarian. Some people were much more anarchist. Right? There's different interests that people had, and before yeah. there was sort of this rallying point, which was lost. Yeah, but then Stallman, he oh he whatever he did, he kept his um like people admire him and, and he was like uh the guiding point, whatever. Until he kinda of betrayed that Oh his personal life the, actually he didn't betray yeah. his values, his personal life sort of undercut you know, the, the, the external and, and that's the interesting thing, is that certain kinds of behavior in certain communities is sort of uh, cuts across that, but even before, but I think it's important to note that the interesting thing to me is that the the beauty of Linux is that uh, it a survived, you know, it, it it escaped from the herd by you know basically mm. Linux repackaging all that stuff in a different decentralized metaphor, and then the community then survived the loss of Stallman. It did lose some cohesion and unity because it didn't have that rallying figure, uh, but you know, and, and, you know, this is a interesting thing because I think you have a lot of the same values uh, that Stallman had. And the interesting question is, is okay, how do you actually um, do that without, of his, without any of his annoying personality characteristics? <laughs> you have to Or, or said another way. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. You have to codify those values that Stallman had that people hired you have to codify them and then separate them from him, you know, and say, hey, okay, these values that Stallman has, we believe in them. We need to uh, separate them so that if, when he dies, whatever, anything happens to him, we can continue. So th- there was this uh, programmer, there was this, the, the, the riser FS file system. Remember that? It was a super file system that people, oh, yeah, this is great. But then the guy murdered his wife or something. And and it went away. The, the writer yeah. FS, everybody went. Oh, we cannot touch that. If they had earlier said, okay, writer, you're perfect. You're a great programmer. Whatever. You have great values. You need to separate those from yourself. Or he needs to separate these things from himself and put him in some entity, so that anything that he does, he still cannot damage the uh, 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 the entity. That's what you have to do. You know the yeah. Personal... Well, I, I think I, I, I think I think I would say, but more, more precisely, as the more effectively we can convert our internal uh, analog semantics into externalized, digitized syntax or structure, the more survivable and extensible that system is. Right, and yeah. that's an actually fascinating design principle, which I'd never heard articulated before. But I think the point so, is, is it's not just how rapidly, it has to be effectively, because if you do it too fast, I've had this problem, 
lots of people have this problem, mm-hmm. like a, a founder who gives away 90% of his company without realizing what's truly important to him, you know, and it gets run into the ground by some acquisition or the VCs, right? So it is being able to wisely externalize your semantics into syntax to make sure that the best parts of what you aspire to are embodied in that and persist and that your personal weaknesses and idiosyncrasies don't. And I think Alan Kay talks about this, right? You want to design for yourself at a deep level, not at an idiosyncratic level. That is the thing that actually creates breakthrough design. And mm-hmm. that's, that, that and is why very much actually the introspective, intrapsychic problem of knowing yourself and knowing what you want and what is good about that is uh, maps directly onto this external social construct. This is why I put you two through the zigzag, right, Ernest? To force you to dig mm-hmm. through all the intrapsychic stuff of what you want, to find an externalized structure of something mm-hmm. that we can hang on to that actually matters. And, uh, you know, hey, we've got uh, a niche drugged into the co- uh, conversation in both senses of the word. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we can see that master class. Sorry? So in, in our lifetimes, in the last decade, a master class in codifying your principles and making sure that the principles are stronger than your cult of personality, that's Satoshi Nakamoto. And mm. his solution, by the way, and this, this would kind of be my reply to some of your points earlier about, Ernie, about you know, selfless versus or self-interested versus interest in the self-action. His solution was nobody, not even me, is trustworthy. I am disappearing. And the amount of self-discipline that that takes is, is truly staggering. He is worth, if he's alive, something like $48 billion, like $45 billion, something in that has never spent a dime or moved a dime of that money that anybody knows and is not active in the project. And by the way, because- It may not even this, be an individual. <laughs> it, it could be several people, right? But be, because yeah, right. of his abstention, because of his anonymity and ultimately- what is the word I'm with? His withdrawal from the process, only for that reason, is the system more resilient than any other? Be- precisely because other systems can be sued and have a CEO, you know, who could be <laughs> hit with a wrench, <laughs> mm-hmm. so to speak, you know, and, and his principles can be bent. Now, right, and this is, this, and that's actually the beauty of the blockchain is this idea that you can create something that is, I mean, there's failure modes around that. You need to have a Bitcoin council and you've got forks and things like that. But yeah, that is the, um, certainly the, the high watermark of an individual building a system that transcended himself so completely and transcended any other individuals completely. That is definitely something to aspire towards, at least. Spiritually, and, but here's the not, interesting thing. Yeah. Bitcoin only has to count. So in other words, Bitcoin is not at the semantic level. And, and I think we're asking the question of how do you do something like that with a semantic system? Bitcoin so only counts. Ethereum people. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't, well, I didn't understand the Ethereum connection. Ethereum is also asking that question, is can you do that? At yeah, sure, level? and it's a so much more complicated product. Sure, it's definitely more complicated. Right, and, and, with, and there's different places who solve that in different ways. But, but, here's, but it is an interesting thing. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we have another example of something where we managed to agree on a syntactic level, which is the internet, IETF, DNS, IP, et cetera, where there is this sense of this thing, which at least sedimentarily, there's stuff that is not really under the control of anyone. It's just part of our common shared culture. And 
you know, uh, many pieces of it work without any. Uh, so we did find a certain set of semantics that have become globally ubiquitous uh, that allow us to do oh, those, things. That's all syntax, though, isn't it? That's well, all that's syntax, the whole point. Though, right? The whole point is, 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 but it is much richer semantics than just counting. Okay, fair enough. It's, it, yeah. yeah, more. The, I wouldn't use the word semantics. I'd use it's a richer set of abstractions or. Uh, the functionality, but, 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 but we talked about, but you, but okay, I think we're arguing enough. that like you know, Bitcoin and money were like this simple scalar thing, you know, which was like a single price dimension. Is certainly a value. Scalar. Well, yeah, price, it's, yeah, it's right. a hyperdimensional well, scalar, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, but that's a, but there's also these vectors that we have found that also you can build these robust syntactic systems around things like names, right? The domain naming system and addresses and like it, 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 is, it seems obvious to me that there's lots of that. In, in a in the in a world that if you can and here's I think the important thing is that you know prior to money or you know or, or uh, I was just reading uh, Neil Stevenson's Baroque Cycle, which is really about the the development of cryptology and the development of money and modernity as an emerging phenomenon and all this stuff that was happening. And you know before that, like real money was gold. If you had a piece of gold, you know it was worth its weight in gold, literally, and people would shave it in order to get these weights and whatever. And then you move from that concrete instantiation as gold to a Bank of England note uh, was this convoluted process uh, that took, you know, a century or two. But at the end of it, it's like um, the, the people who figured out how to, how to uh, syntactically create money, right, out of this big analog artifact uh, took over the world. You know, because well, and, and they then they then they have value. been corrupted because oh, the, sure. the paper just it's, it's just purely paper now. And uh, sorry, the reason well, the that's is, significant. Well, the point is, but, but, but the point was is that that you know even thinking of money as a a price as an abstraction was an innovative way of looking at it, right? That you have a market which had a clearing price as opposed to just whatever you can bargain out of a merchant. That was a novel innovation of you know in Venice or London or somewhere. Right, the thing that the Milton Friedman was idolizing as this amazing thing that wasn't a given that was handed down from heaven. That was a social construct that emerged. Mm. What's the step? Right, you have forward a market clearing through. price, and it was a huge step oh, forward. It's like, well, okay, no, we, but did, it, we did that. I don't. That was a thing. There's a difference between things. Did. It happened. That's different than we did it. And and so, let me explain what I mean. The well, price contains. Okay. Yeah, so, so these but, implicit but the contracts. concept of a market clearing price, that was not okay. a thing that existed until we had a certain concept of a market. Okay. Before then, a market was just a place where random vendors would come here and you would haggle with everybody, and there was no market price until at some point yeah. someone noticed this phenomenon and put a name on it and built machinery around it and learned to optimize it, and then they outcompeted everyone else who didn't do that. Yeah, and, and what we would call an exchange, as in a stock exchange, is a very formalized version of that, where there's actually a single price that's broadcast every day. Right, yeah, and that was very much a thing that, that, that emerged and then was then reified. Sure. And, and my point is, is, we did it once. Like it, it, it was, it was Human beings did it, maybe not a single person the way Satoshi did, but different communities over time did this thing, and that had enormous unlocking potential. It's like, well... We did it once for, um, you know, money. We did it 
uh, again for the internet. We did it, you know, Satoshi did it again for blockchain. Like, why can't we build a competency around doing this more? Of learning how to create these mm. shared, converting these shared semantic I, I love concepts it. into into syntactic exchanges. So, so what is this though? So, so that is that is my question. You're, we're right back on the main line here. So, so what is the this though? In other words, a competency in what? A competency uh, well, in turning shared semantic, achieving a shared semantic understanding that is embodied in a functioning syntactic system. Wow. Uh, and both of those are hard. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I would. I guess, yeah. It's hard to. I'm glad this is recorded. Uh, sorry, uh, Ernest, mm-hmm. just one second. I'm glad this is recorded. Uh, there's one thing, I think, small thing that's missing. And I, I st- what I still didn't, where I got stuck, and, and I think is, is an open problem for me, at least, in datocracy, is how we go from local alignment to global alignment. Okay. And, and, and it seems to me that that isn't just piling up more and more syntax. There's, I claim that there's a clever twist required in there because if it wasn't, we would have syntaxed our way <laughs> into global mm. semantics by now. Yeah, no, and, and we need. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Ernest. We need context, and and that's yeah. a, a discussion that Ernest and I had. So context is like object that serves as a mapping uh, to uh, you know between two. Uh, communities that speak that that have different culture, different, uh, for example, uh, gay people and and straight people, that's part of that, and the word marriage, right? There's uh, a, a common meaning, but there there's also not just a meaning. A it's, it's like a, a connotation, a, a, a yeah, publishing. You know, I I wanna I wanna show the world that this person and and, and myself are you know linked. Right, so um, okay. uh, that's the, the 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 meaning that it has. But then it's got it's got emotional, yeah, emotional weight. The word has such an emotional weight that people do, you know, all kinds of things to avoid it. When you know, you know, when it comes to like uh, uh, for gay people with the uh, what is it, civil unions or something, but they rejected that term. No, this is not a civil union. This is a marriage because. There's a, a way to that to that word. There's, yeah, there's um, also a way to that so, word. Yeah, yeah. So there's okay, I gotta, context. Uh, yeah. There's culture. I just I just, to, speaking of context, I, yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. I think this is a great place to actually. Uh, I'm gonna have to bail and get back to my family context. And, um, <laughs> but I think this is a good place because I think the, the way I would phrase your question, Anish, is even if you manage to get some level of agreement in, um, alignment in a local context, how do you grow that to other contexts? And I think that's the uh, hard problem. Um, uh, is that is that a fair way of reframing your your question, Anish? Yeah, Go yeah, and I and I think that 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 is that is the good question that Ernest is really pressing. Is like, okay, I think we have some understanding of what I'll call tribal alignment or tribal semantics, right? And in fact, a tribe is is a group of people with a shared language. Organizations yeah. have a better chance. We see across business units, it's really painful. But it's doable because at least there's a shared corporate culture, and, and where you there is took an it, autocratic figure at top, right? This is the thing that makes if, it like, if necessary some, to break ties, correct? Yeah, and here's the interesting thing: is is can we do it in a bottom-up way with rather than a top-down way? 
And that is both a practical question I have for you in terms of uh, using your tool and a great philosophical question for us to pick up next week. Sounds good. All right. Any last words? <laughs> no, I think we could. Close this out. <laughs> All right. Oh, Thanks, everybody. Well, okay. Let's, uh, um, oh, I think we, I think I we managed end. another cliffhanger. <laughs> No, no. I just want to, uh, when it comes to reflecting and uh, having examples of uh, uh, people that are imparting their values on their organizations, I think Charles uh, Haskinson, you know, the head of Cardano, uh, you know, we were talking a whole lot of uh, uh, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, but I think he is, right now, he's the head of his, uh, the, the Cardano movement, right? And he's taking all the shots. People are you know, pursuing the project because it takes too long, and you know, it keeps saying that uh, it keeps moving um, milestones. But I see that as you know, we want to do this right. We don't want to break, move fast, and break things. We want to do it slow, methodical, testing, testing, testing. He's doing that, and people are, you know, betting against him and 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 his companies and all that stuff. But he is taking all the all that to himself. But then through that, he is kind of imparting all those values. So when, when he goes, they will stay with Cardano. They will stay with that company. So that the members remember what he did, what he is mm. doing, so that, you know, anything happens in the future, they, will, they have those things in themselves. Now, we have to, or they have to make sure that they not only have them individually, but they have it recorded some, somehow, right? So that the you know the newborns that you know twenty years twenty years from now they learn not just from the practitioners but also from history they can see the history and see how, what Charles went through what his philosophy of developing systems is and they will keep that going forward uh, so I, I think and he's doing a great job. Question of civilizing and uh, education and culture and all and legacy and all these things which are. Mm -hmm. literally how his civilization is passed on in these ways and we see how it works amazingly well in some ways and horrifyingly mm -hmm. bad in others and this is the interesting question of can we do better yeah. all right P parting thank thought you. thanks everybody thank you okay. thank you okay. bye bye bye, -bye.